This is a story of who we were. How we got here. And where we are going. You've got mail. So join us as we take history off the page. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of History Off the Page. For those of you that are new to the podcast, my name is Dr. Jason Hansen, and I'm a professor of modern European history at Furman University. This episode is part of a special series that we're doing on the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We normally focus more on European topics, and you can find out more about other episodes by checking out our website, www.historyoffthepage.com. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be discussing the role played by the First World War in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, including major moments such as the Balfour Declaration of 1917, the Arab Revolt, and the complications that ensued during the post-war negotiations over what would become the territory we now refer to as Palestine. We'll see how the collapse of the Ottoman Empire would open new spaces for the construction of an independent Jewish state, while at the same time, complications between Arab and Palestinian identity inhibited a similar development among the local Arab community. Okay, so let's get into it. As most of you know, the kind of triggering event, no pun intended there, that starts World War I is the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand during a visit to the Bosnian capital of Sarajevo on June 28, 1914. This, of course, sets off a chain of events that leads to the start of the First World War. And if you're not familiar with the, those basic series of events, you can check out uh, one of the two podcast episodes that we did on the history of World War I, the first one especially focusing on kind of the more diplomatic military history, the second one on everyday experience for soldiers and for civilians alike. But anyways, when historians talk about this, there's a tendency to start by talking about the assassination, the conflict between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, the kind of dominoes that follow because of the various alliance systems that are set up in Europe. We also tend to talk mostly about the war in European terms. Even though it's called a world war, we talk a heck of a lot about the Western Front. There's usually some mention of the Eastern Front, but not a whole lot of emphasis on that. Every now and then you'll get a, a little bit of talk about something like Gallipoli. But for the most part, especially in European history, when we talk about World War I, we talk about it as almost being exclusively European. But the war is also incredibly consequential for events in the Middle East. Before the war begins, as we saw in a previous podcast episode, most of this area is ruled over by the Ottoman Empire. You have that same kind of dynamic that exists in Eastern Europe, where you have these dynastic states, you have the sultan basically operating out of Istanbul, ruling over a multinational, multi-ethnic empire where people have lots of different kind of goals, different identities, and the loyalty to the state is achieved dynastically. And of course, all this will be replaced after the war with a kind of more system based on nationalism. So 
The fighting in the Middle East is very consequential. The breakup eventually of the Ottoman Empire becomes very consequential. So these are very important topics to cover as we're talking about, again, the history of Israel-Palestine. Now, in terms of the people living in the region, the war's effects are felt almost immediately. Again, the assassination occurs at the end of June. There's a couple weeks of kind of diplomatic negotiations that are going on, mostly in Europe. But the Ottoman Empire is also or becomes part of these complications, all these alliance systems, these, these dominoes that are falling, right? The Ottomans have a very close relationship at this point with Germany. They also have a long history going back at least two centuries of fighting wars with the Russians. They had just been defeated in the first Balkan War, not by the Russians, but by some of their proxies, by Serbia in particular. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm for getting involved. As early as August 2nd, the Ottoman government, under the leadership of the Young Turks, which is kind of headed by these three guys uh, that are the Pashas, they agree to an alliance with Germany. And they do this because they think, okay, this is a chance to make up for some of the lost territory. This will kind of be like a third Balkan War. But basically, World War I for the Turks seems like a chance at revenge. And so on October 29, 1914, the Ottomans officially enter the war and their fleet begins bombarding several Russian positions in the Black Sea. In January 1915, a 22,000-man army led by one of the Pashas, Jamal Pasha, begins an attack on the Suez Canal via the Sinai Peninsula. Now, Sinai is a desert. This is before... We have a lot of mechanization going on. There is railroads, obviously. There, there, you know, we do have some things like the steamship. But to cross the Sinai Peninsula is no small matter with 22,000 men. Jamal Pasha kind of pulls this off. He has some German commanders that are involved uh, in the planning and in the attack itself. They try in February to actually cross the Suez Canal and take full control over it. And this attack is repelled pretty easily. So after some initial successes, the Ottoman Turks' efforts to, uh, again, invade Egypt, to take the Suez Canal, which is the lifeblood of the British Empire, those efforts fail, and they kind of have to retreat back to about Beersheba. However, the fact that the Ottomans are able to, to kind of even mount this type of attack forces reconsiderations in British geostrategic thinking. And in particular, if you know anything about the British Empire, you know that the Suez Canal is, again, as I said, it's the lifeblood of the empire. The, the strength of British industrialization comes from India, from having not just access to resources that you can withdraw, but especially having access to the market of India and controlling the market of India and forcing the hundreds of millions of people that live there essentially to buy British goods because you can manipulate the taxes, essentially. The idea that a foreign power could threaten the Suez Canal becomes enormously problematic for the British. And so as they are carrying out the war effort, as they are thinking about what is Europe going to look like after this war is over, securing Palestine now becomes a British geostrategic objective. Not because of the people that are there, not because they care about Muslims or Jews or Catholics or Protestants. 
and this has traditionally driven some of the European interest in the region, especially from Russia and France, but for the British, controlling the territory itself now becomes imperative because you are cutting off a threat to the Suez Canal. Now, the British, of course, have some colonial troops in Egypt. They have Egyptian soldiers that are commanded, in some cases, by British officers. But they also need auxiliaries, right? They're going to fight the Ottomans. The Ottomans have their own empire. They have imperial troops in in various places, right? Uh, It's very far from Britain. So the British start thinking immediately, okay, we need to find allies if we are going to protect the Suez Canal, if we're going to defeat the Turks. One of the first people that they turn to, and in fact, this person actually kind of approaches them, is Sharif Hussein bin Ali, Emir of Mecca. Hussein had become the Emir in 1908, and the Emir is kind of like a special defender of Mecca. It's kind of like a person who is personally in charge of the defense of the holy cities of Mecca, and a little bit Medina, but Mecca is really the the key city here. It's the most important city in all of Islam. And once he has this position, he actually has a little bit more freedom or autonomy in terms of politics and political organization than most Ottoman appointees. And so Sharif Hussein is not just going to be a kind of another bureaucrat, an administrator, he's obviously not Turkish, but he can dream about the idea of an Arabian kingdom, a future, independent, powerful Arab nation that, by the way, will also have Sharif Hussein as its head, right? So he is a social riser isn't the right word, right? Because he's kind of born into his position to some extent, but he is someone who is ambitious, He is someone who wants to tear up or break up the map of the Middle East and get rid of this kind of Ottoman structure that's an imperial structure that's over them and replace it with something that is an Arab structure with him as, again, the head. In 1915, Hussein writes to the British and says, you know what, I would be willing to lead a rebellion against the Ottomans in exchange for support for an independent Arab kingdom. You give me weapons, you give me troops, you give me training to some extent, and I will help turn the conflict going on in the Middle East into more than just Muslims versus the British, because Muslims are supposed to be following the Sultan, the head of the Ottoman Empire, but I will lead a rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. Now, in these negotiations, They, of course, are talking about, well, what will constitute this new territory? Where do the British colonial possessions show up? How do we work things out? And one of the things that the British do that's very brilliant from a diplomatic standpoint, of course, is that you want to be somewhat vague. You don't want to just draw lines on a map because then people come back after the war and say, well, these are the lines that we drew. This gets them into some trouble with the French later on. The British and Hussein are able to agree on most of the kind of territories that will be part of this new Arab kingdom, but they are intentionally vague when it comes to the issue of the Syrian coastline. Now, when we say the Syrian coastline, we have to think a little bit bigger than just the kind of modern idea of Syria, because you also have Lebanon and you also have especially the northern part of Israel. 
or Palestine, whichever one you want to call it. So the British are kind of negotiating with Hussein over this territory. They're also negotiating with the French almost at the same time. Because the French want to establish a protectorate in Syria. The French want to also have influence in the region. The French had previously, under Napoleon III, they had tried to play themselves up as the defenders of Catholics in particular in the Holy Land. In late 1915, the British and French are negotiating over what a partition of the Ottoman Empire might look like. This leads to something called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, where, as I said, they actually do draw a map and, and sign the map and you know, kind of say these territories will be French, these territories will be for Britain. But basically, again, at the same time, the British are going to reach out to Hussein. They want to support this. They need allies. They want distractions against the Ottomans. And so on June 10th, 1916, Hussein officially launches the Arab Revolt. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the Arab Revolt, right, I mentioned Islam here. Sharif Hussein wants to use Islam as a way of kind of a, a attacking the right of the Turks to rule. But he has to be careful about this because the sultan rules in the name of being the most powerful secular leader of Islam. So he doesn't take up arms specifically against the sultan. He says, I am actually protecting the sultan against these young Turks, against these guys who have corrupted Islam, who are leading it away from uh, kind of what it's supposed to be. And so I am actually defending Islam against the Turks. Which is fascinating because one of the things the Turks are doing from, again, the very early part of the war is they define this as jihad. They actually have a guy that comes out, says, no, this is officially jihad. Muslims in the Western states, Muslims in Russia, Muslims that, that are living in, in you know, the Triple Entente, you all need to rise up against your host nations because this is a religious war, Islam versus foreigners. And so in a really clever way, Sharif Hussein is also kind of using this idea of, of a war for Islam as a way to uh, attack the Ottoman Empire. Hussein will also promote Arab nationalism, although he does this not because he's a true believer. Again, he's, his goal is he wants a kingdom with himself as head or his children as head. And so he's willing to pursue whatever ideological kind of vectors or ideological paths will get him to that end result. There's similarities here perhaps to Bismarck. Right? The idea that you're going to embrace nationalism, not because you're really a nationalist, you don't really care about Germany that much, but you care about Prussia and you understand that the way to Prussian power is through embracing the idea of German identity. And if you want a fuller explanation of that, check out our episode on blood and iron, which is the story of German unification and the story of German nationalism and national identity. Incidentally, the British are not the only ones casting about for additional allies, this idea of how do I, how do I destabilize my enemy's colonial possessions? The Turks also do this. Right? The British also have colonial, maybe possessions is too strong a word, but the British are basically running a colony in Egypt, even though it's technically sort of part of the Ottoman Empire. And so the Turks will reach out and look for allies to lead their own rebellion. For those of you that are interested in this, it's called the Senussi Revolt. It begins in sort of Egypt and in what we would call Libya today in 1915. The kind of rebels are defeated. They result to guerrilla warfare for a little while. 
So one of the things that I find just so fascinating about Middle Eastern history in general and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in, in specific is you have so many sort of similar movements, mere images or, or kind of maybe not mere images, but, but kind of similar developments, similar approximations happening in, in multiple areas. So we could look at something like the Arab Revolt and say, oh, okay, we've got the Arab Revolt, but there's also one going on on the British side as well. We could look at more broadly these, these conflicts over identity, this question of, of religions, my majorities, minorities, right? Everybody talks about Israel-Palestine today. The situation in Lebanon is also fascinating, problematic. You also have a lot of violence. You also have a civil war. You also have colonialism playing a role in the story. Right? There's all these kind of mere images that go on. And so it's just a fascinating story. Again, the more, it's like an onion, the more layers that you peel away, the more you find. Okay, so we talked about sort of the origins of the Arab Revolt, the British looking for allies. Well, there's another group living in the Middle East, not quite as big, obviously, but the British seem to think, okay, we need allies, we need any help we can get. Maybe, maybe we can get these Zionist guys on our side, and maybe that will help further the British war effort. And so the key figure that will emerge from World War I as a spokesman for Zionism in the UK is Dr. Heim Weizmann. Now, Weizmann was a 40-year-old chemistry professor. He's actually born in, in Russia. Um, he's educated in Germany. He's very cosmopolitan. But basically, he's teaching in the UK. There is an issue related to producing a substance called acetone. Acetone is a compound that's used in the production of explosives. They're running low on it. They need more explosives, of course. And so Weizmann actually figures out how to kind of synthetically produce more of this acetone compound. And so he kind of wins friends and influence in British government and in British politics. He seems like someone that's going to be a key player in the Allied war effort. And so when a new British government is formed in December of 1916, Weizmann basically finds sympathetic ears to the Zionist project in the new prime minister, David Lloyd George, and his foreign secretary, Lord Balfour. Weizmann is going to go on to become probably one of, if not the most important figures in the development of the Israeli state before 1948, because he is the key man running around negotiating with people. Uh, we mentioned uh, Hussein just a moment ago. We'll talk about this a little bit later. But uh, basically, Weizmann and Hussein's son Faisal have uh, a long friendship uh, are involved in deep correspondence and conversations with each other. How does the Arab Revolt fit next to Zionism? So Weizmann is a key player in the story that we are going to meet going forward. He is also a key player that we are going to meet time and time again in the story going forward. In fact, he's actually going to become the first president of Israel. So in many ways, he's, he's kind of almost becomes like a George Washington, if you will of the Zionist movement. One of the other reasons that the British decide to kind of throw their lot in with Zionism or the reason that the British decide to support it during the war is they feel like a lot of these Jews living in Palestine, a lot of these Zionist Jews, they come from Russia. 
And so the hope is that they can use their kind of Russian connections or influence on Russian society to kind of keep Russia in the war, keep the, the kind of, you know, band together, if you will. So there's also kind of a, a lot of projection going on here. There's, you could call it anti-Semitic, you know, this projection that Jews have kind of world power, right? That, that's part of what's animating the British. So this leads on November 2nd, 1917 to what becomes known as the Balfour Declaration. Now, the Balfour Declaration, at least in its like sort of physical format, is not actually some sort of treaty. It's, it's not some major kind of announcement in the way that we would think today. It's actually a letter that Balfour writes to Lord Rothschild where he says, okay, Britain is going to be committed to the establishment in Palestine of a, quote, national home for the Jewish people, end quote. The whole thing is actually not very long. It's just a little letter. You can find it online. Now, we said when the British were negotiating with the leaders of the Arab revolt, they, they were kind of purposely vague, especially when it came to the question of where are the boundaries of, of this new Arab state in the West. You can get some of that vague diplomatic language here in the letter. What does it mean to create a national home for Jewish people? Are we talking here about an independent state as clearly many Zionists understood, right? This, this sounded to many of them like, okay, Britain is on board. We are now finally going to have a, a patron for the establishment of an independent state. Of course, that's not what it says. It says a national home. Did that mean an autonomous region within whatever state existed? There were attempts, there were efforts to convince the Sultan that this would be a good idea before World War I. Was this talking in a more basic sense about the idea of there will be a Jewish national home, we will accept Jews coming from all over the world, but it's not really about political power, it's not really about creating a state, it's more about the idea of we're going to allow sort of unfettered Jewish immigration to the region and again, if we're thinking about what is Palestine in this period, as we'll see, people don't have a clearly defined notion of this is a geographic territory, Palestine. The, the people living here are Palestinians. It, it, it's not understood in the way that I think a lot of people think about it today. One of the big contradictions or one of the big sort of tensions is between Arab and Palestinian belonging. What does it mean to be a Palestinian versus what does it mean to be an Arab? And if you look at the situation and you say, okay, being Palestinian itself isn't that important, it's really about being Arab, well, there are millions and millions and millions of Arabs, and there's not really a threat that Jews are going to come in and replace or become the majority if you're looking at the Middle East as a whole. So what does this idea mean of a Jewish national home? What are the dimensions of it? How does it relate to being Palestinian? How does it relate to being Arab? None of this is, is in the letter. But what is in the letter is it also says, quote, civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, end quote, are basically going to be protected. Well, okay, what does that mean? If you're talking about the civil and religious rights of the non-Jewish population, does that mean that they're going to be a minority? And you're kind of saying these are minority rights under a new Jewish majority that's going to be formed? Does this mean we're not breaking up the Ottoman Empire? Does this, 
Is it going to be part of the Arab state? Like, it's just not there. And it's not there. It's not flushed out because they don't want to talk about it. And so basically what you get with the Balfour Declaration is people can see what they want in it. If you are one of those, again, it's very small at this time period, but there are some people that we would call kind of Palestinian national activists. When they think about what their community is, they think about the specific region of Palestine, which is very small compared to the entire Middle East. They look at this and go, oh my God, this is really scary. These are Jews. They're coming to colonize. They're coming to take over. We are going to have our state stolen from us. So you can read it in lots of different ways. Interestingly, and I remember I just mentioned a second ago, there's this whole kind of, you know, upside down world or mirror images of things where like, so one one group is doing one thing and you can kind of find like an example on the other side of it. Interestingly, the reaction of the central powers to the Balfour Declaration isn't to go, oh, okay, we're going to whip up Arab nationalism now, like the Jews are coming for us, etc., the central powers see in this idea of the formation of a Jewish national homeland a serious threat. Talat Pasha, who is the Ottoman minister of the interior and one of the three Pashas that is essentially a kind of the leaders of the Young Turk movement, his reaction to it is to announce that they are going to cancel all restrictions on Jewish immigration to Palestine. So the Ottomans, who before the war, are kind of on the fence about it, kind of have this I don't know if ambiguous attitude towards Zionism is the right word. There's times when they are more supportive of it. There's times when they try to close off immigration because they realize that it's it's stirring up kind of antipathy among the local Arab population. But basically, in the wake of the Balfour Declaration, the Ottoman Empire says, no, no, we need Jewish support too. We are you know, going to, again, cancel all restrictions on Jewish migration to Palestine. In January 1918, the Ottoman government approves the establishment of a chartered company to settle Jews in Palestine on an autonomous basis. Now, this isn't just that the Ottomans are thinking, oh, okay, maybe we can you know, win Jewish support. Maybe we can find a way to win over Jews in neutral countries who happen to be Zionists. You also have Zionists in Germany itself. You also have tremendous German interest in the Middle East and kind of colonial, maybe not explicit colonial interference, but the kind of indirect colonialism, trying to secure favors for Germany, trying to win over the Turks as an ally. So the central powers, including the Germans, including the Ottomans, including the Austro-Hungarians, get on board with this notion of a Jewish homeland. Had the central powers won the war, had Germany broken through or fully exploited the breakthroughs that they were able to make in the spring of 1918, in the spring offensive, had they won the war, maybe you still get some kind of Jewish state. It's kind of interesting counterfactual to think about. Needless to say, the issuance of the Balfour Declaration became one of the most important moments in the story of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On the one hand, it offers Zionists the first real prospect backed by a foreign state, of creating an independent Jewish state. In other words, it's, it's one thing for people like Herzl and others to kind of write about oh, what this independent Jewish state might look like, what could happen, you know, what is the possibility. 
it's very different when you have one of the great powers kind of formally endorsing the notion of creating some kind of Jewish home. The Zionist dream goes from being just that, a dream into something that is now policy or is a part of policy discussions. At the same time, it also is a watershed because it breaks apart any chance of maintaining a unified, multi-ethnic polity in Palestine. Once Zionists have a realistic option at an independent state, why would they walk away from that and start working towards, again, a kind of of more coexistence, uh, you know, hopefully one day they could get autonomy, something like that. The idea of Ottomanism after the war doesn't make any sense anymore, especially once it seems like building a Zionist state is, is a real possibility. So just to wrap up this basic overview, in early 1917, British Egyptian forces led by General Edmund Allenby will launch a major offensive against the Ottomans in Palestine. Now, this offensive is assisted by some of those additional auxiliary forces that the British had been trying to recruit. Of course, if you've seen the movie Lawrence of Arabia, you might have seen this this famous scene or series of scenes where they take the port of Aqaba. Aqaba is basically just down at the very, very bottom of modern Israel or Palestine. It's a port city. It's technically in Jordan today, I think. And basically, it has this giant 600-mile desert outside of it. And so, T.E. Lawrence, Faisal, this Arab army, make this incredible trek over this 600 miles of desert in order to attack the Turks at Aqaba, and they take the town, and this becomes a major moment in the Arab rebellion. Anyway, after some initial successes, the main British offensive in Palestine kind of stalls a little bit in April. The Turks are down there. There are some German auxiliary troops that are sent down to fight, kind of stabilize the front. There's another kind of mini breakthrough in October 1917, and Jerusalem falls to Allenby and his sort of Anglo-Egyptian army on December 9th, 1917. Allenby sort of presses into Syria, and then eventually in October 1918, the entire front will fall apart along with the rest of the Ottoman Empire. And before we go any further, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the effects that the war has on the issue of identity. Again, I think this is one of the things that when you hear some of the dominant narratives, whether it's the colonial narrative, whether it's the anti-Semitism or a Jewish Jewish hatred narrative, these questions of of identity and the complexities of it are, are something that I think are so phenomenally important and we just don't discuss enough. So when the war begins... You're the Ottoman Empire. You have all these kind of multinational communities. There is a kind of two-pronged offensive that they're going to launch in order to try to win over the support of their own people or their own subjects is probably a best way to put it. For the Ottomans, the obvious choice here is to emphasize the Islamic notion of the empire because that's the binding agent that keeps the vast majority of the people together. You have some Christians, you have some Jews, but most of the empire, even the non-Arab portion, are Islamic subjects. And so again, very quickly, early on, there is a declaration of jihad, right? How should we understand what's going on? Well, clearly it should be Muslims versus Christians, and, and that's the kind of basic story, or Muslims versus kind of 
particular Christians in, in England and France and Russia. At the same time, Ottomans realized that there are other identities out there that, that are not going to work in the Ottoman favor that might even be used against it, and they're going to try to suppress these alternative loyalties. We'll talk in just a second about some of the more consequential ones, but one of them, the biggest one, the biggest threat that's out there, we've already kind of mentioned, is Arabism. You'll recall that as we get into the beginning of the 20th century, there are people who identify as Arabs who would say, look, this Ottoman Sultanate, whether you're a young Turk or whether you like Abdul Hamid II, you like the more sort of Sultan-centered uh, version of, of Ottomanism, both of them are corrupt, both of them are weak, both of them are problematic. And so again, around 1900, they start creating this idea of Arabism. They say, you know, if we're thinking about Islam, where does the power of Islam come from? Where is the glory, the magnificence, the cultural dynamism of it? It doesn't come from those Turks. It comes from the Arabs. They're the ones who invented. And so there is a real danger here from the Ottoman perspective that you're going to lose the loyalties of large numbers of your subjects if they become more interested in or if they identify more closely with an Arab identity than they do an Islamic one. And of course, the, you know, we just talked about Sharif Hussein. These fears are not unwarranted, right? The, the, there are people in other parts of the empire who are going to try to play up this notion of Arabism as a way to try to separate themselves from the Ottoman Empire. Now, for the purposes of this podcast, the area that we want to talk about is actually not just Palestine, but greater Syria. Greater Syria includes Palestine, includes modern-day uh, Syria as well, obviously, includes modern-day Lebanon. But this is actually the Ottoman administrative district that exists. There isn't, as I said, this notion of Palestine that's, that's clear on a map that we would identify today. Or maybe to put that better, we have a much clearer sense of what we mean geographically by Palestine than people did at the period and, and kind of thinking about, you know, what are the key boundaries between places. Today, we'd say, obviously, the Israeli-Lebanese border is a pretty big deal. In this time period, it's not quite as, as well flushed out. So greater Syria is placed under the direct military rule of Jamal Pasha who, as we said, is one of the most important Ottoman politicians of the period. By the end of the war, Jamal Pasha would be known as Al-Safa, which translates roughly to the bloodshedder. Jamal Pasha is not a nice guy. Jamal Pasha is not someone that, that sat around thinking about understanding and coexistence and tolerance. Quite the opposite, he is a ruthless man, who, especially after the failure of his offensive in 1915, will rule over greater Syria with an iron fist. He conducts a brutal campaign of repression against the local Arab population, or maybe better put, against leaders of the Arabist movement within the Arab population. The idea here is that you are going to intimidate people into loyalty. Are you guys all familiar with Machiavelli? The big question is, is it better to be feared or loved? Well, Jamal Pasha definitely felt being feared was the way to go. Again, under his governorship, Arabist intellectuals and politicians are deported to Anatolia. And some of the most prominent members of the movement, including prominent, 
what we would call today Palestinian families, are actually executed for treason. So while this strategy of oppression actually mostly works in the region of greater Syria itself, in Palestine, during the war, in the long run, it is going to further inflame those tensions between Ottoman and Arab loyalty or identity. Now, at the same time, the political dimensions of the war also place the local Jewish population in a very difficult position. You'll recall from one of our previous episodes, we talked about this idea of citizenship, and we noted that because of some of the lack of democratic flavor, if you will, of the Ottoman Empire, because of some of the restrictions on the local Jewish population, it actually makes more sense if you are a Jewish migrant from Russia or Poland arriving in Palestine in the late 19th century, it makes more sense for you not to take Ottoman citizenship to remain a foreigner because you actually kind of have more rights as a foreigner than you would as an Ottoman. Well, this becomes a problem when the war breaks out. At the time of war, when we're really worried about loyalties, okay, all these Jews are here that have Russian citizenship. Even though they fled Russia, the fear is, well, these people could be a fifth column We need to remove these people. We need to repress these people. I'm coming to you from the United States. What happens during World War II in the United States? You are probably very familiar with Japanese citizens being sent to internment camps. You might be familiar with some of the anti-German sentiment that breaks out during World War I. So as early as December 1914, just a couple months after the beginning of the war, before kind of those setbacks had occurred, Ottoman authorities began repressing the Jewish population in the name of state security. 6,000 Jews were expelled from the port of Jaffa, and an additional 700 Jews were arrested and deported to Anatolia. Which, by the way, there are more minorities in the Ottoman Empire than just Jews and Christians. Arabs aren't really what we think of as a minority because where they're concentrated in the Middle East, they're the majority, but they don't have political power or they have less political power. The group that will actually suffer the most at Ottoman hands during World War I is, of course, the Armenians. This is sadly the roots of of one of those great, terrible episodes of, of history when we see genocide taking place. It starts with deportations as early as April of 1915. So this is, again, just a couple months after the beginning of the war, at least the Ottoman entry into the war. About half a million to 1.5 million people will die in this. So even though we aren't going to spend time going into that in this episode, it's worth, again, kind of putting all of these repressions in their larger context. When the war breaks out, to be a minority in the Ottoman Empire is to suffer specifically because of your minority identity. If you're thinking about what the community is going to look like after the war, there is this kind of idea out there, this possibility, that Ottoman citizenship could have created a binding agent. We talked about this in the last podcast episode a little bit. Here in the United States, we have people from all kinds of different religious backgrounds. And they can all become citizens, and we can all live next to each other as neighbors because we have that idea of a loyalty that is not tied to religious identity or ethnic identity. But the Ottoman treatment of these subjects during the war 
And then, of course, the shattering of the empire afterwards, it, it eliminates this kind of possibility. To get back to the history, during World War I, 10,000 Jews will flee to Egypt, where they will find asylum in refugee camps. Again, I mentioned this idea of mere images. The Palestinians are not the only ones who've ever lived in refugee camps in the Middle East. If you go back to, again, the World War I period, there are refugee camps for Jews. And as we'll see, these refugee camps for Jews become great places to recruit people who want to fight on behalf of Jewish independence or Jewish freedom. I'm not drawing a one-to-one comparison to Hamas. I'm not saying they're equivalent. I'm just saying that there are similar developments and kind of echoes that that go throughout history on, on both sides. Again, just to complete the thought, Zionist political activities during World War I are banned by the Ottoman Empire, at least before the Balfour Declaration. And local Ottoman officials will encourage Arab violence against the Jewish minority. How do you ensure a minority group's loyalty to your state, you make it clear to them the consequences that could follow if they don't follow you. Before they decide to, again, get rid of restrictions on Jewish immigration before the Balfour Declaration, Jamal Pasha had actually ordered the evacuation of all Jewish inhabitants of Jaffa and Tel Aviv. In the last weeks of the war, as the Ottoman Empire is falling apart, as Ottoman soldiers are deserting, and they think, I need to survive. I, you know, am very frustrated. I have been through this harrowing experience. There are, you know, people that are minorities there that have farms, that have food, livestock, etc. And so some of these Ottoman soldiers will begin to attack those Jewish farms. When this violence happens... It's very easy for people to read that as either religious or ethnic violence, right? If you're on the receiving end of it, you're not thinking, oh, these are poor soldiers. Their state is, you know, disintegrating. Uh, I know that I don't like that they attacked me, but, you know, I see their point of view. No, it doesn't. You know, people reduce things to simplicities. People think about it in ways that are easy to understand. And, of course, this gets understood as intracommunal violence. By the war's end the Jewish population of what we would call today Palestine or Israel plummets from about 85,000 to 55,000. There are more than 10,000 Palestinian Jews who die during World War I. Now, of course, as these events are playing out over the course of time, minority populations have to react to them. They have to adjust to them. They have to try to navigate them or negotiate them. And so for many of those Jews living in Palestine, the best option in the beginning days of the war seemed to be to express your loyalty for the Ottoman state. And what better way to be loyal than to volunteer to serve in the army, which as we saw is relatively new. Most of the history of minority life under Islam, Jews and Christians are not allowed to serve in the military. Instead, they have to pay kind of a special tax. This actually becomes a a way for Zionists, for Jews, to express support for the Ottoman state, to try to realize their goals within the broader context of the war. Even someone like David Ben-Gurion 
gets involved in this. He actually petitions the Turkish government. He says, I want the right to form a specifically Jewish Ottoman unit. Put Jews together, let them have some idea of community, some idea of maybe even political autonomy, and you will win their support for the war effort. It's very similar to the pitch made to the British. There's also kind of a very interesting game that's played beneath the surface of Arabs and Zionists negotiating with each other, talking to each other, playing out what would this look like if instead of us fighting each other and hoping to kind of win the Ottomans' support or later on the British' support to push things one way or another, what if we teamed up against these imperial powers? Whether that's initially the Ottomans, later on it's going to be the British and the French. What if the two peoples work together to try to get their goals? At any rate, by 1915, over 24,000 Palestinian Jews will apply for Ottoman citizenship because they want to show their loyalty. They want to be accepted as members of the local community. As we know, these efforts were mostly in vain. As was the case with the Arabists, Jamal Pasha is not interested in supporting local groups, is not interested in minority rights, is not interested in fulfilling the Enlightenment project. So we already talked about some of these repressive measures that he adopts against the local Jewish community after, again, especially 1915, after his initial defeat. I mentioned David Ben-Gurion a second ago. What happens to David Ben-Gurion, right? He wants to fight for the Turks. He wants to organize, you know, a Jewish legion under the Turks. David Ben-Gurion is exiled. And we'll talk more about what happens to him in just a second. I just want to end this discussion about individual experiences during the war by also saying it's not just a question of repression of minorities or repression of potential rivals or alternatives that goes on from a political standpoint. The people of Palestine, regardless of what their identity is, they experience massive suffering during the war itself. Large numbers of Arabs will serve, along with some Jews, in the Ottoman military during the war the war. They will die during the war. They will experience the hardships and the trauma, shell shock, you know, being, having your limbs amputated. We explored this notion of the home front in one of our episodes on World War I. You also have somewhat of an equivalent, at least in the sense that the people living in the different parts of the Ottoman Empire, also experience the hardship of war, particularly in a place like Palestine, which, again, is not the the crown jewel of the Ottoman Empire. In many cases, or in many ways, it's just a kind of backwater. So when the Ottomans put higher taxes on people to pay for the war, when the Ottomans come and take away your livestock or some of your food reserves, it leads to catastrophe, it leads to starvation, and an estimated 35,000 people in Palestine will die. About 30% of these people are Jews, Palestinian Jews. Again, forgetting about the sectarian nature of it, just thinking more broadly, we talked about one of the big kind of developments in the territory of Palestine in the run-up to World War I was the development of the citrus industry. The reclaiming of land, the, the, the ability to make money for immigrants to find jobs, whether they're coming from Europe or whether they're coming from other parts of the Arab world. 
Well, once the war starts, that citrus market gets closed off. In fact, things are so bad that members of the German and the American Jewish communities will actually set up relief efforts specifically for Jews, Palestinian Jews or Jews in Palestine, if you prefer. One of these guys is kind of interesting. His name is Henry Morgenthau, and he would eventually become the Treasury Secretary under FDR, under Roosevelt. He was the American ambassador in Constantinople during the war, so this is why he plays such a key role in kind of setting up Jewish relief networks. But if you go and watch something like the Ken Burns documentary on Americans in the Holocaust, one of the things that you'll find is the American government was very divided about what to do about Jews during the Holocaust, either refugees, Jews living in Germany. And so Morgenthau actually becomes one of the key players leading American efforts to help members of the European Jewish community. He does this because, in part, he has some experience already from World War I. So, again, just to kind of bring the thoughts of this sort of section together, the impact of the war on the local population of Palestine is to inflame or reinforce the sense of ethnic or religious difference between Jews and Arabs. At the same time, while the communities did not blame each other for their respective sufferings, the nature of the war, the extreme conditions that it imposed, We've just been talking about the suffering. Even if people don't say, oh, I see this other group is responsible for my suffering, the mere fact that I am suffering and that all of my kind of members of my community are also suffering tends to act as a binding agent, bringing people of that community together or solidifying or heightening or increasing or emphasizing those ideals of identity. As Jews and Arabs begin to think about what the post-World War I landscape will look like, they are less interested in cooperation, in toleration, in saying, you know what, you know, in order to live together, we have to make sacrifices. In order to have peace, I have to give some to this other group so that they're satisfied and now I'm satisfied. Coming out of World War I, coming out of what feels in some ways like a very existential moment, I'm not in the mood for compromise. I need to assure my ability to survive, and that means control. It's not a recipe for building a kind of one-state solution. And so this is going to affect, again, the directions that we go in after World War I. Now, there's a second key consequence that comes out of World War I, where the two communities, Arabs and Jews, experience things quite differently. And so one of the kind of questions that we haven't gotten to yet, but it's, it's an important question that kind of defines in many ways the sort of current situation, is why is it that Jews seem to be, or Zionists if you prefer, seem to be so successful at building a modern state, a modern nation, and Palestinians seem to have not had that same success. The story of nationhood or, or, or building a national community in Palestine, it seems to kind of lag what Jews have accomplished. It, it, you know, there is no Palestinian state, even in 1947. In 1947, by the way, Arabs are still a large majority in Israel, or a significant majority, maybe one could say. Why do they lose the war? They're surrounded by other Arab states who want them to win. 
although there are complications that we'll get into when we get to that part. Why does the Nakba happen in 1948? Why do Palestinians, they don't just lose the war, they are soundly defeated and driven into exile. Why does that happen? Is one of the big kind of overarching questions that we're going to get into. Some of that goes back to World War I. Some of that goes back to the first initial stages of state building. Right? We, we talked about Herzl already. A lot of people talk about Zionism as if, well, Herzl wrote the Jewish state and then basically everybody was on board and, and there was a Jewish community and there was a Jewish national state. And it just, it was very easy. There's a lot of work that goes into nation building. There's a lot of convincing that has to be done to get people on board or to adopt that identity. We saw before the war that there were some Zionist organizations created that were participating in or encouraging Jewish immigration. We saw that there was a political network that was set up that extended into Europe, that there was a financial network set up so that as these Arab families start selling land, that there's Jews who are looking to buy that land. We even talked about some things like Hashomer, the watchmen, right? This, this group of kind of vigilante night watchmen, they're going to protect Jewish property. If we look at the bigger picture, though, on the eve of World War I, this process of kind of state building is extremely limited and for the most part had not been successful. Efforts to coordinate institutions, to create some sort of quasi-government to speak on behalf of all Palestinian Jews, those fail in the years before World War I. We have, you know, again, I keep using Jews and Zionists, and I've flushed this out in previous episodes, but they're not quite the same thing. And there's different reasons for Zionism. Are you there because you think of it in religious terms? Are you there because you think of it in cultural or national terms? What is your opinion on socialism versus capitalism? Do you want to kind of cohabitate with the local Arab population? Do you want to drive out the local Arab population? There's all these sort of big questions that can't be worked out. I mentioned Hashomer. Hashomer has like 100 people in it. It's not the basis for a state or an army or something like that. But essentially, the war will breathe new opportunities into these efforts. These harsh costs, these, these suffering that is experienced by the Jewish communities in Palestine, that becomes a really good reason to figure out how to coordinate activities, to figure out how to take care of your co-religionists that are suffering. And so we see this creation of new charity networks, intercommunal rationing even happens, but it's not done by Ottoman authorities. It's not led by a sense of Ottoman civic nature that is going to treat Arabs and Jews similarly, it's done on a confessional basis. And that's, again, one of the reasons that the two communities, or three if you want to include the, the Christian Arabs as separate, it's one of the reasons that they start moving in different directions. The biggest World War I era development, however, in this process of state building is created by military necessity. We saw earlier how the Allies were looking for troops. They were looking for other groups that they could include in their armies in the uprising. And Sharif Hussein's Arab army is one such example of this. Well, after 1915, after you have these Jews that are exiled, we can mention there's 10,000 Jews in refugee camps in Egypt. 
Well, that's a great place to go to start recruiting Jewish soldiers. And so it is from these efforts that we're going to see the first specifically Jewish military unit. Now, the leaders of this effort are going to be a pair of guys named Vladimir Yabotinsky and Joseph Trumpeldor. Yabotinsky is basically a radical journalist from a middle-class family in Odessa. He spent time in Germany, in Italy. His kind of mindset is shaped by the experience of the pogroms in Russia, but then also going especially to Italy. Later on, he's going to read about people like uh, Gabriel D'Annunzio. He's going to be influenced, some would argue, by kind of the early fascism. And so he becomes deeply involved in the Zionist movement. In 1908, he moves to Constantinople, or Istanbul, where he establishes a pro-Young Turk magazine that's designed to kind of help convince the Turks to create an autonomous Jewish area in Palestine. Yabotinsky plays an important role in the kind of Jewish community during World War I, but he's probably even more important in the 1920s and even into the 1930s, and we'll, we'll get into that in our next podcast episode. Now, Trumpeldor, on the other hand, is basically a former dentist who serves in the Russian army during the Russo-Japanese War. He loses an arm. He's known as kind of a tough guy. And he moves to Palestine after the Russo-Japanese War to become a farmer. These two men, Trumpeldor and Yabotinsky, will meet at the Mafruza refugee camp in Egypt, where they will start to cook up again the idea of a Jewish legion that this time will fight not for the Ottomans, but for the British. Now, again, there's another tangent that we could go into here about the British Empire and their use of colonial troops during World War I. There is a lot of racism. There is a lot of feeling that, well, you know, you wouldn't trust colonial troops to be able to go over the top. How could they possibly maintain discipline? How could they, you know, stay together? And so a lot of colonial troops in the initial part of the war, in the middle part of the war, get used as manual labor. And so the British kind of have this same attitude. We're not going to arm these Jewish guys. We don't, you know, this isn't maybe necessarily the best idea. Who knows what it could do to the Arab population. But we will make what becomes known as the Zion Mule Corps. And so in the spring of 1915, as the Allies are getting ready for the Gallipoli campaign, they have a Jewish unit, again, known as the Zion Mule Corps. It has about 500 Jewish men in it. And their job is basically logistics. But they are part of a specific and separate Jewish unit. They get to put Stars of David on their shoulders. They get to start building a Jewish-only institution that, as we'll see in a second, can quickly be expanded, or will later be expanded, into something more technically capable. In August 1917, as things are kind of falling apart on the Eastern Front, the Russian government at this time, it's not quite gone. The czar is gone. Uh, It's replaced by the provisional government. There is uh, some infighting going on between the kind of civilian head of the government, Alex Kerensky, and the the military commander, Lars Kornilov. You can find out more about all of this in our podcast episode on the Russian Revolution. 
But basically, the British are desperate for manpower. And so they will now approve the formation of a specifically Jewish combat unit. This becomes known as the Jewish Legion, compromises the 38th, 39th, and part of the 40th Royal Fusiliers. It is full of Jews not just from the refugee camp, but Jabotinsky will go to places like London's East End, where you have a lot of Jewish immigrants coming over from Russia in the 1880s and 1890s. They will go to the United States and begin to try to recruit Jews to join the Jewish Legion. Some of you may be familiar with a woman named Golda Meir. Later on, she becomes the Israeli prime minister. She wanted to be a part of the Jewish Legion. They didn't accept women at this time. But she's exposed to this recruiting. She's living in, I believe, Wisconsin. By the end of the war, over 6,500 Jewish men have enlisted in the Jewish Legion, including key future leaders like Ben-Gurion and many of the other Zionist figures that will be directly engaged in building a nation-state in Palestine in the 1920s and 1930s. The Jewish Legion actually arrives in Palestine in February of 1918, and the vast majority of them actually see action in the field, in the final campaign against the Ottomans. Just to give you a sense of the scale here, when we're talking about over 5,000 Jewish fighters, that's about half the size of Faisal's army. So it's not a huge player like the British army. It's not, you know, one-to-one ratio there. But 5,000 soldiers in the Middle East in this time period, that's a pretty significant contribution. The effects of the formation of the Jewish Legion are profound. For unlike the local Palestinian Arab population, which mostly has to fight under the Ottoman banner, or they don't fight at all, when we talk about the Arab Legion, most of the Arab Legion is comprised of tribesmen coming from Arabia. It's, it's not local Palestinians or Palestinian Arabs that are rising up and becoming a part of it. Most of them remain pretty loyal, actually, to the Ottoman Empire. So unlike the local Arab population, which even if they do see military service, they do it as part of larger Ottoman units, these Jewish soldiers experience the rigor of combat, they receive valuable training, they understand the importance of logistics and organization in warfare. They have a sort of esprit de corps, right, a sort of sense of identity, being, again, Jewish soldiers. And they inspire enthusiasm and credibility in this idea of a Jewish nation. Again, it's easy for people like Herzl, or it's relatively easy for people like Herzl to write things in books and talk about, oh, this nation exists, this is how people should feel. It's quite different to get people to, to win them over to a cause to the point where they're literally willing to sacrifice their lives. So while we're talking about alternative paths, that, that ways that identity could have developed in the region, politics could have developed in the region, what the Jewish Legion shows for many local Jews is, is that the idea of creating a Zionist independent nation, that is a real option on the table. It is a real and increasingly, becoming increasingly real possibility of what the future could look like. It also better prepares the Israeli side for combat in 1948. You have people with actual combat experience 
you have people who have fought together, not just that they have some combat experience, but have have, have integrated and, and understand each other, common tactics, right? There is a, a sort of closer unity, if you will, on the, the sort of Zionist side of the scale. To develop this point further, we also want to think a little bit more about the Palestinian experience or the Palestinian Arab experience. And the way that the war reconstructs Middle Eastern politics after it's over. For Zionists, they get to show a distinct entity, the Jewish Legion. They get to talk about Zionist organizations. And they can show how they contributed to the Allied war effort. And so when the war is over, of course, all the people on the winning side are supposed to get something for their troubles. It's easy for them to present a claim of we and to show that we, quote-unquote, did something, and that we should get something for that. It also helps them that the claim that they want to make to territory is one that they have to do via the patronage of a great power. And so if you're the British, and the thing that you care about most of all after the war is over is establishing control, a buffer, if you will, over Palestine so that you can have this, again, this buffer versus the Suez Canal, well, Zionism is now a convenient means to your end. The Arabs also play a key role in the winning of World War I. The Arabs also make tremendous sacrifices, also experience suffering. The thing is, at Paris, they do this not as Palestinians, not as people who inhabit the region of Palestine and want to create an independent Palestinian state there, they do it as Arabs. When the claims are advanced as to what the Middle East should look like afterwards at the Paris Peace Conference, it is an Arab case that is being made by Arab leaders who are based not in Palestine, who are not concerned about the specific dimensions necessarily of just things going on in Palestine, but they are concerned about regional affairs. Their home base is Mecca. Sharif Hussein, his son Faisal, they're not fighting on behalf of the Palestinians. They're fighting on behalf of the Arabs, and most Arabs don't live in what we would call today Palestine. So as negotiations are going on about who is going to get what and where they can go, it's very easy to construct a place for a, a sort of Jewish state or Jewish autonomous region or whatever you want to call it in Palestine and simultaneously to read out claims of local Arab families or to, to kind of, again, think about the bigger picture and understand Palestinian experience as benefiting from concessions made to Arab leadership in other places. One of the ways that this happens, in more specific terms, is in the idea of what is going to happen to the land that was part of the Ottoman Empire that is today Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, or Israel. So this area of greater Syria. What's going to happen there? The key concession that Sharif Hussein had tried to negotiate was not the setting up of an independent Palestinian state. It was the creation of several Arab kingdoms that his sons or his dynasty would basically become the heads of. And those kingdoms are the kingdom of Iraq, 
the kingdom of Syria, but understood as greater Syria. He also had this idea of building out an Arabian kingdom as well. Faisal wants the crown of greater Syria. Now, this greater Syria would also include Palestine and Lebanon. Faisal, in the immediate aftermath of the war, into 1919, is willing to negotiate with Weizmann, is, is willing to say, you know what, I can, I can try to find my way to some sort of agreement about Jews in Palestine. You, on the other hand, can, can support me as I fight against the French and to some extent the British. Maybe there's a quid pro quo that we can both benefit from. Faisal wants to be the king of the Arab population of Palestine, but not as Palestinians, but as Arabs. And so this creates a kind of tension. To kind of move the historical narrative forward a little bit, one of the things that happens is that you basically have an election to an Arab council that's going to meet in Damascus in March 1920. The elections to this Arab council include people coming from the land of Palestine. If you are someone who thinks of themselves as a Palestinian nationalist, who who thinks about not just being Arab, but also thinks being Palestinian specifically is really, really, really important, your political kind of push after World War I initially is not to form an independent Palestine. It is to form a greater Syria in which you will be ruled over by Faisal as part of this larger Arab state. Of course, the British and French also play a key part in this story. The British and the French, even though they had made all these promises, they were vague at times, even when they made a promise, right? Sometimes they don't keep it. Once the war was over, the French goal is to get their hands on Syria. They don't want Faisal to really be an Arab king, right? Okay, maybe you can be the monarch, you can rule indirectly, but, but we really are going to take control and do what we want in Syria and Lebanon. To make a long story short, Faisal declares himself king in 1920, and that prompts a French invasion. And in the summer of 1920, Faisal's Arab army is defeated. He is driven out of Syria, and he will go on to basically become king of Iraq. The initial hopes of building an Arab rather than a Palestinian state out of the partition of the Ottoman Empire, these are stillborn. Zionists essentially have a head start on the idea of nation building, whereas what we would eventually kind of describe as the Palestinian side is sidetracked, loses time, and is still trying to work out what this vision of a future state could look like on on their side of things. There's a little bit more I want to say about the regional developments that happen in 1919 and 1920, because they're going to come back and play a key story in the broader Arab-Israeli conflict. Right? So we, we have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today, but that's kind of before we get to the point we're at today, from basically really at least 1980, maybe 1990, going back to 1948, all of this is playing out within the broader context of an Arab-Israeli conflict. One of the key relationships in this broader Arab-Israeli conflict is the relationship between Israel and Jordan. So how do we get Jordan? Well, Jordan's story essentially starts with this story that we've just been telling, essentially starts with this narrative of the attempt to create an Arab kingdom in Syria. 
When Faisal's brother Abdullah hears that Faisal has been driven from Syria, he gets together an army and he begins to lead it towards Damascus in the hope of liberating it from the French. To get there, he's got to cross over Iraq. He's got to cross over what is today the, the Jordanian territory, which had been assigned to the British or claimed by the British. And the British don't want another huge war breaking out. There's all kinds of other conflicts breaking out in the early 1920s. And so what the British do is they say, look, Abdullah, we will offer you the crown of this new state that we're going to put together called Transjordan. There are not many people that live there. It's very deserty. You can draw the boundary as far to the west as as uh, as you're able to, uh, you know, we still got the Balfour Declaration. We're trying to work out what that means. But eventually, right, whatever land is, wherever that border is, you're going to get some of that as well. And for the British, they love this idea because now we're going to have a government. We're going to have someone sort of controlling uh, the, this region again where Jordan is. We're going to have order and less chaos. Jordan thus acquired a Hashemite king who, while he's Arab, is not someone descended from a local family. The king of Jordan today, their family, their lineage, it's kind of like some of these European cases where, you know, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's husband was not British. But he becomes the, like, sort of king consort, if you will. I forget what his official title is. So his interests and those of his people at times don't exactly coincide. He has to do a lot of work to basically convince the local population that he is on their side, that his interests do kind of represent theirs. So Jordanian politics are fascinating, and a lot of it comes from World War I. We don't have too much time to get into it, but basically the British kind of see Faisal has been kicked out of Syria. They then offer the kingdom of Iraq to Faisal, And he accepts that, and he goes on and rules over Iraq until 1932. As for their father, Sharif Hussein, the guy who originally started the Arab Rebellion, unfortunately, his story did not work out so well. Despite his contributions to the Allied war effort, the British basically become kind of irritated with him, and in 1924, they officially withdraw their support. One of the reasons that the British become Irritated with him, by the way, is the Balfour Declaration. Unlike his son Faisal, who at least initially expresses some openness to it, Faisal will eventually turn against it. Right? He does want Palestine to be part of an Arab kingdom. Hussein was never really uh, as enthusiastic about it. He was always kind of against uh, the idea of Zionism. And so because he's becoming a kind of thorn in the British side, they kind of withdraw their support. In 1924, after the formal dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, Hussein would actually declare himself caliph, potentially destabilizing British efforts to control other parts of the region. In response, the British basically encourage the Saudis to attack, and their forces rapidly capture Mecca and Medina. A caliph without a country, Hussein then abdicates, ending his days in exile in Cyprus. And of course, the Saudis then would go and create the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So again, so much of the Middle Eastern history comes back to World War I, comes back to some of the political settlements, especially in its wake. So where does this leave us? Well, I should start by saying that there are other developments going on in the Middle East. I know we haven't gone into all of them. 
especially the situation with the Kurds, the Armenians. Uh, really, one could, could go on and on about all these developments taking place. The point of our discussion, of course, today was not to be comprehensive, was not to provide you with the detailed history of Middle Eastern politics during World War I and afterwards, but again, to kind of get at the historical roots of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Towards that end, two points, again, are really worth re-emphasizing. One, the experience of the war helped to sharpen certain loyalties in the region, but it doesn't do this evenly. For Jews, conflict and suffering at the hands of Ottoman authorities help reinforce the Zionist goal of fostering a separate Jewish consciousness. The notion of being a Palestinian Jew, native or immigrant, began to make less and less sense. On the other hand, the war also weakened the idea of dynastic loyalty, the idea that common belonging within the Ottoman state would form the primary form of the region's political identities. By the end of 1918, it was clear that Ottomanism in Palestine or greater Syria or however you want to frame it, was dead. The question then became, what would replace it? Here, notions of Arab, as opposed to a distinct Palestinian identity, proved to be stronger, at least in terms of formal politics. Now, I'm not saying that people living in the region of Palestine, Arabs specifically, did not feel a sense or a rising sense of Palestinian belonging, but their sense of how this should be expressed politically tended to flow more into the idea of being Arab and living in a state that's basis was defined by its Arab belonging or its Arab basis than it was in one that was specifically limited to Palestine. These efforts to create a greater Arab kingdom in Syria, however, failed, due in large part to European and in particular French colonial interference. So again, we see these initial questions, these initial paths about what would happen afterwards splitting in terms of the experience of the two communities, not just in the sense that they're separate from each other, but in course of the actual pace of development. Second, the nature of the conflict also witnessed the beginnings or the acceleration of Zionist efforts at nation-building. Zionist experience in World War I, the creation of distinct units like the Jewish Legion, provided the foundation for the emergence of a modern state, with its ability to mobilize and harness the resources of its entire population. Palestinian Arabs, on the other hand, did not experience these developments as distinctly Palestinians or as a distinctly Palestinian entity with distinctly Palestinian institutions. Thus, as the British mandate would come into being in the early 1920s, they were not as prepared to build a political entity that could succeed it. But we'll get into that more in our next episode, which will cover the history of the conflict basically from 1919 to 1936. For now, that will have to be the end of our show for today. I'd like to thank you again for listening. Next time, as I mentioned on History Off the Page, we'll discuss the issue of the British mandate and the building of sort of separate Jewish and Arab communities and political institutions in the years after 1920 under the mandate. If you liked our show, please like or subscribe and tell your friends about us. You can also check out some of our other episodes on, for example, topics like the Ukraine War, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, the French Revolution, all kinds of, of other historical topics. You can find more details about these on our website, 
www.historyoffthepage.com. That's all for now. Please join us next time as we take history off the page. Thank you.